0: we have been uh, watching these pictures on our uh, bumper there. It shows uh, uh, the history of Bel Air and for the 55 years that it's been in existence here. Man, time flies. Is it not when you're behind how fast life goes? I uh, love my friends told me uh, about he went to a reunion. And isn't it funny how when you haven't seen people for a while, uh, how they change, how you look good and they don't. Have you noticed that? Or He's a dentist uh, back in Colorado and he said that he was one day a new... Uh, Client came in, a patient, and sat down, and he started asking her some questions. You know, dentists only ask you questions when they have stuff in your mouth. You know, that's the thing. And he started to ask where she's from, and she said, I'm from here. And he said, really, where'd you go to school? And she said, I went to Central High. And he said, really, when'd you graduate? She said, in 1975. And he looked at this older-looking woman. And he said, really, I was there in 1975. And she looked up and said, really, what'd you teach? We all, from the inside out, have to learn our lessons. One of them is knowing when to keep the mouth closed. (laughs) They said that life is not fair. It gives you the test first, and then the lesson. That's true if you have a low learning potential. The wise person learns from their mistakes. The really wise person learns from the mistakes of others. You don't have to make every mistake in the world to learn from others and take notes and say, don't do that. Jesus, as he was addressing his disciples, when they're asking who is the greatest, brings these children up and he points out something to them. That you need to take care of them. And teaching children, whether they are little, whether they are old, is the art of discipline. Discipline is simply postponing gratification. You choose not to feel good in the moment, to feel greater later. That's what discipline is about. The book of Hebrews said it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as his own child. Discipline isn't about being mean. It's about doing something of less value for something of a greater value. When an athlete postpones gratification for the moment, when she's working out so hard just wants to quit and she does another lap, and so that later on she can be happier to be a champion. I told you before, I love it. Tom Landry said... He said, as a coach of the Dallas Cowboys, he said, My job is to make really big men do things they don't want to do so they become who they want to become champions. They don't want to do those laughs, they don't want to do that. My job is to get them to do what they don't want to do so they can become that. That's discipline. Think of the discipline of an artist. Think of a discipline of a musician. TJ and Noah and the band, they didn't just pick that up as children. They have to take the time and mark on the drums to take the time to be able to perfect that. The discipline of an investor. They used to have those in America. Investors that invest rather than just day trading to be able to say later on, I'm going to get a return on that that's greater. We have a person who's an inventor here in this church. And he says the frustrating thing for his job is you have to keep going over the same failed experiment time and time again. Because later on, you know, it will work. Thomas Edison, they said, tried it over 10,000 times before he found the filament for the Luminescent bulb, and they asked it about 9,000. They said they failed 9,000. I said, No, I know 9,000 things that don't work. I'm gonna keep going at this. That's discipline, or the discipline of a family. The kick is in a family, you raise your threshold for not your pain, their pain. If you love your family members and you're committed to them, it's not just about you going through painful times. It's about letting them go through painful times and not rescue them. You don't do your homework for your children if you love them because they'll never learn. You don't step in and try to live someone else's life. And here's the whole point of what Jesus is saying in our passage this morning. You can't live somebody's life for them. But... You and I can live our lives that stack the odds and they're winning or they're losing if they choose that. The good news is you and I can't live somebody else's life for them. Even if we love them with all of our heart, you can't live their life for them. But you and I have a responsibility of how we live our lives for those that are behind us and those that are right next to us. And how you get them ready, giving them a fighting chance in this crazy world of conflict between good and evil, is you invest in them. You invest the capital relationally, financially, and spiritually. And when you invest in lives in that way, it yields a harvest, which is, Christ said, tenfold, a hundredfold, a thousandfold, because it's not up to our job to make it grow, but it's our job to be able to plant the seed. And Jesus, when he points this out, it's this fascinating insight into this life that you and I live. Well, you see what Christ said. The disciples are saying, who's the greatest? What rabbi is Jesus going to mention? Is it going to be a prophet? Is it going to be King David? Is it going to be Solomon? And the boys completely were shocked. Blew them out of their sandals. Because Jesus stops, gets a little kid and brings him up and says, Unless you become like this child, not childish, but childlike, you'll never make it. And by the way, this is the greatest in the kingdom. And then he has this weird warning. But then he goes along, and as long as he's on that, he talks about the greatest thing that you can give a child. The two parents that love each other. Turn with me over to Matthew into the 19th chapter. It's on page 800 in your pew Bible there. That the good news is that we are to invest this capital into people, and it starts with mom and dad. 19.1 you know, He's talking about forgiveness You've got to forgive, you've got to forgive, you've got to give And of course the next thing he'll bring up is what? Marriage When Jesus had finished saying these things He left Galilee and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan Large crowds followed him and he cured them there Some Pharisees came to him and to test him They said Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? I pause Now why'd they do that? Well Divorce was more common in the first century Judea than it is today in America. Under the Talmud and the teaching, if you were going to divorce your wife, you had to three times say to her, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. couldn't be just once in case you were in a bad mood. You had to really mean it. And it was done. In fact, there was a, a debate between Hillel and Shammai, the two schools of questioning on what are the grounds of that. Of course, adultery would be one. But adultery means that you'd be embarrassed public. So what if she embarrassed you in public by a bad meal? And one of the rabbis actually said, if she embarrasses you in any way, you have the right to divorce her. So they come to Jesus. Why would they test him with this? Because they obviously think Jesus is big on this family thing. Look what he... Verse 4. He answered, have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Pause. What he's saying is, I can't talk to you about divorce. You don't even get marriage. You don't get the teleological, the 50 cent word meaning the purpose and the epistemological, the basis of why God created it. Two people becoming one. This is the beauty and the wonder of what God has done. You want to talk about the death, you don't even understand the life. But they're ready for him. Okay. Then why they said, verse 7, did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce Pause. And if you look up in Deuteronomy, Moses says that when you divorce your wife now notice, it's the man alone that has legal rights. The female does not. And Moses was actually being as a co, uh, compared to the Canaanite culture. They were coming into saying you need to be able to do this in a classy way and to be able to do this. And so they said, what do you mean you can't divorce? Moses told us to do this. Who do you think you are? Jesus is just warming up. So he says, verse eight, it was because you were so hard hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another, the implied, he is the one who commits adultery. The disciples hear this and they go, shazam. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. And I love that they go, we got a keeper. Don't do it. All right. (laughs) But he said to them, not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. For some, there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth. They were born that way. Others are eunuchs that have made eunuchs by others. They're castrated. And others are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. And what Jesus is saying is marriage is not salvific. That's not what saves you. That's not the whole purpose of life. Some will never marry. Some for the kingdom. Some can't marry in that sense from procreation. And others choose not to do it. But his point being... That if you don't understand that the first thing you can give to a child is a strong marriage, you're not going to get this at all. We in the evangelical church in the last 10 years have gotten really silent on divorce. And the reason why is so many of us have gone through it. My parents were divorced. My brother was divorced. Carolyn's parents were divorced. Her siblings are divorced. And and many of you in here have gone through that. And so what we wanted to say in God's grace is to say we need to respond and not stigmatize people who have gone through a divorce. That's very true. But God says when two become one, you do not leave that person without it costing you something. I preached on this one time and a woman who had gone through a divorce went home and committed suicide and left a note saying because of what Mark said today. And I said, I'm never going to preach on that again. And then I said, no, that's not so. First of all, she left behind two kids, and it was really a cheap shot, and I, not to belittle the horrible pain and darkness she was going through. But what God is saying is, when I bring you together, that you stay together. Now, it's tough to do, because of there's this friction that goes on in marriage, and there's disappointments and anger and need to forgive. I told you, I love that woman that came to the pastor and said, I'm leaving my husband. He said, but you said you'd take him for better or worse. She said, I know, but he's a lot worse than what I took him for. I'm out of here. i tell you that. <laughs> and what is happening is that Jesus is saying, you don't understand the life that is taking place. I told you before, the Romans were really creative in punishment. There was a procurator in present-day Turkey in Asia Minor who came up and under his province, if you committed murder, this was his punishment. He would take the corpse of the person you murdered and chain it to you for six weeks. Then he would execute you. I mean, he's going to kill you anyway. But for six weeks, you had to stay tied to the person you kill. I mean, it's pretty creative, is it not? To remind you of what you've done. And there's a lot of people in marriages that are dragging around dead corpses thinking that is honoring God. And I think there's a time that they need to bury them. Having said that, you bury something before it's dead, that's called murder. And God takes the death of a relationship on the level I think is the death of an individual. Now, this surgery, when you come together, it is such a tough surgery. And those of you who have gone through it, God says, I hate divorce in Malachi. But it's interesting, he never prohibits it. Nowhere in the Mosaic Covenant, nowhere does he say, thou shalt not divorce. He says, thou shalt not commit adultery, but he doesn't say, thou shalt not divorce. So why would he not prohibit it? And yet say that he can't stand it. And he can't stand it for all of you that have been through divorce or listening online. It's because you know how it tears your heart out. Because Jesus says he's a tragic realist. Because of your hardness of heart, he allowed it. Some people think it's such a radical surgery, like conjoined twins. It's not like dissolving a partnership. That to do that is so risky never to do it. Others say, no, if you don't divide, someone's going to die in this. And in abusive situations, I think you forfeit your right to be in that marriage. I absolutely do. But having said that, what this is getting around to, Jesus is saying this on the echo of forgiveness and children. And loving and coming alongside. And it doesn't glorify God to be in a relationship where it's mutually destructive and somehow saying, well, because we're staying together, this honors the Lord. God is much more grace-filled than that. But he says, but don't devalue this marriage thing. You know, some of our early uh, founding fathers and some of the mothers, you know how they died? Because medicine in colonial days, remember you ever heard of bloodletting? A barbershop pole, you know, has it red and blue around that? Because that's where you could go in. They thought you got sick because your blood was old. So you'd go in periodically and they'd cut you open and bleed you? And they died from that? Americans have this view that we're relationally bloodletting. We get tired and we just let the old blood out. And we're killing ourselves in that sense. And this is a cheery message. But so what God calls us to do, the good side of that is the power that he has to be able to oversee and to care. Husbands loving wives and wives loving husbands, the greatest thing that you can give to a child. And that's why so many of you that are single moms and dads, we as the family of faith. Notice Jesus says to the disciples, these kids are your responsibility. They weren't their kids. Their kids are back home. They're traveling Jesus. And he says, you need to disciple these kids and care for them. And that's also true of those that are young spiritually, and yet they're old age-wise. Then that's one of the great privileges that we have to come alongside. And how do you make a child stumble? Let them raise themselves. Jesus says it's a bad day when you do that. You make one of these kids stumble, and I love them more than you do, and you love them. It would be better you have a millstone around your neck and you be buried in the depths of the sea than you do that to one of my children. And how do you let them do that? Let the world raise them. Let the media raise them. Let everybody else raise them but you. And God says, that's a bad day. That's a bad day for you. But those, and there are heroic men and women in public schools as well as in Christian schools. We have singles here that help parents come alongside and that help out with the kids. And when you love these children, because they're not their children, they're our children, that God releases a power and a gift into that. I just read one of the most cynical things I've ever heard of. You know, we have our partner, Ponraj, in North India. And I was reading this, this one from Ponrash. This was from uh, over in the English papers. There is a chemical plant there that had been pouring all these pollutants next to this village. And the village was upset. So the chemical plant to buy the people's favor made a playground for children on another site that was a previous toxic waste site. They put a playground over the top of it so they could buy the favor of these kids, not caring for these kids. Is that as jaded and hard-hearted as you can get? No, America comes close. We just put a little playground over the values that are so antithetical for the good of our kids and the things of the kingdom and say, that's all right, at least they have a better lifestyle. And Jesus says, Oh, contraire, that when we come in and value clarification, every year I do a value clarification. Ideals are what you want to live for, values are where you actually spend what you care about. Once a year I have a take an enemy to lunch week. Do you have that? I'll tell you what week it is if you want to know what I think about you, by the way. Um, well, you ought to do this. But into your own life, people you're mad at, or they're mad at you once a week. Uh, you know, just put on your big boy pants and take people out and say, "I'm sorry." Uh, well, that was really random. But anyway, that is, I sit and look at that, but I also look at my values. And I don't know what my values. I look at my calendar, and I look at my checkbook. You give me your calendar. And you give me your visa statements, and I'll tell you what your values are, not your ideals. I'll tell you what you're spending, what you care about. And Jesus says you invest in these children. You invest in them, first of all, in the things of the kingdom, first of all, with relational capital. Spending time with them. And our children, again, can be young. We just had a guy who moved away last week, and he told me, he's in his late 20s, he came here last summer, and he was so Strung out on coke and some of the guys here in a small group brought him in got him straight got him sober Brought him to Christ helped him find a job in an upper northern, California And he said this church saved my life. That's a child spiritually and that's what I'm talking about Not just the kids and being able to care for them But the tough thing is we say well, what about all doesn't people get what they deserve what goes around comes around? kind of a Hindu karma mentality and isn't it because, I was told before it was a kind of a fad in the last 20 years, theologically, generational curses? Didn't God say in Exodus, I will visit the iniquities of the fathers upon the sons and the grandsons? And isn't it because my life stinks because my grandparents has a curse, and if I could just get rid of that curse, my life would be all right? Israel was saying that. Turn over to Ezekiel, to the 18th chapter. It's on page 685 in your pew Bible. And this same question comes up Now, as you know, an Israelite is someone who was in the land before the exile, the sons of Jacob, they belong to Lamb. Judaism, from the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, when the Babylonians took them in exile, and how do they worship, became Jewish. Israeli, by the way, is a nationality. There are a million Arab Israelis. But this is the first of Judaism. Ezekiel's a great book. you ever read it. It's the most bizarre book in the whole Bible. It's got all this weird imagery and all this stuff. It's this frown. And so they're saying we're in captivity because our parents messed up. Look at verse one. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. You know what that means. Dad bit into a lemon and I got a pucker. My old man messes up and then we got to pay for it? Where's the justice in that? God says, As I live, says the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Know that all lives are mine. The life of the parent as well as the life of the child is mine. It is only the person who sins that shall die. Look over in verse 19. Yet you say, Why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? And they're, they're pointing out what God didn't you say back in Exodus? And God says, If the parent sins and the child doesn't, the parent pays. If the parent is righteous and the child sins, the child will pay. Everybody stands before me. And I know some of the best parents that have had the worst children. And I know some of the worst parents that have had great children before. And what God says is, yes, you do have an influence on them, but everybody stands before me. And that's why it's so important that we invest into them. That we invest in the sense of relationally, of caring, respect. This uh, year, it's the 50th anniversary of Maslow. Any of you have had Psych 101's hierarchy came out with that? Remember, at first there's physical needs, and then there's emotional needs, security needs, then there's relational, then there's self-actualization. It was a big revolution back in psychology in the 1950s. Uh, the rabbi said in the first century B.C. Ain lechem, ein lachem, ain't Torah. No bread, no teaching. What they said is if somebody's got a hungry stomach, you can't teach them about the things of God. You take care of their physical needs first and then their spiritual needs. And we in America are really great about taking care of the immediate needs and the educational needs. It's the spiritual needs. Of this next generation. And by the way, this is the best time to have kids and to raise them. Because God is raising up, I'm telling you, I think the greatest generation that this world has ever seen for him. I totally believe this. God is pouring out and raising up such talented, dedicated, young lives. And this is a remarkable time to be alive. We also need to be able to pour into them financial capital. It's an interesting, uh, when I was over in England looking at the question of capitalism... And because everybody has lost so much money around the world, and everybody's really flipping out about this. You know, the basic truth of capitalism is, we spend money we don't have to buy things we don't want to impress people we don't like. It's kind of our economy. And the idea is that capitalism has been based for so long on underpriced commodities that the colonial empires went and strip-mined the world and brought them down and got stuff cheaper than it was worth, and then slavery, underpriced commodities, and then the last 50 to 80 years, debt, an underpriced commodity, and the chickens have come home to roost. And the question is, what is the real value out there? Do you know we have such underpriced commodities over here in our Christian education, and our student ministry, as well as some of our elderly that are here that have such a wealth in them just sitting there, and we're not taking advantage of that. Well, we need to invest in them financially to help out. How do we create that? You know, in, in three weeks, we're going to be having our... In gathering Sunday, it's a great time where you pray before the Lord and I'll never tell you what to do That's between you and the Lord what you want to commit to Bel Air for this next year to help and we got some incredible opportunities We got a lot of burden right now. We really do You know, we first of all have to do things like our student ministry over here We got all these students coming. we got to be able to get the facility large enough for them This roof by the way not to freak you out or anything uh, It's 20 years old and it's falling apart and I'm told that rain comes back every year in California. Is that true? And we've got to repair that. We've lost so much staff because of staff cuts, because of the budget cuts, because of the finances. And ironically, we have more people coming now, giving their life to Christ. And we need some shepherds to help teach you to teach and disciple them. And that's the opportunity right now. And, and in-gathering Sunday is a fun Sunday. It's not a guilt thing. I mean, I should bring a little child up here and say, What's your name? Annie. Annie, do you love Jesus? Yes. What happens if you don't have any teachers? I'll go to hell. I said, do you want Annie to go to hell? Um, well, we're not going to do that. That's craziness. You guys are adults. But what we are going to do is to say, what is the Lord asking you to be able to do to help out? And invest in them. Invest in them. Invest in these lives. You guys are incredible. I just had a pastor tell me we're getting ready for our Lenten series. He said, you know what L.A. needs? I said a lot what he says. They, we need about a dozen Bel Airs. This is another pastor of a large church. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, because of the things that you are doing in connecting churches together and help, it is making such an encouragement to our congregation. And so the ministry, the vital ministry you have of being able to give to the Lord with joy and the spiritual capital, to give him faith. I mean, the world's freaking out. You think it's freaking out now. You haven't seen anything yet. Buckle up. It's going to be Mr. Toad's wild ride out there. But to have the faith to say, God will take you through this. To give them a hope. Not just, well, I'll just make some money and get high and have some friends, a little pleasure, and then I die. No. There's a living hope. God is working in you. And this world is not the very end. There's a glory that is waiting besides helping here. And above all, a love. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And to love your others and love yourself. And teaching young Christians to be able to handle the frustrations and afflictions. I'm just like you. I'm always saying, God, I serve you. How come my life has these pains in them? Jesus told the per- one of the shortest parables is a pearl of great price. That a pearl hunter went out and, in finding a pearl of great price, he sold all that he had and purchased the pearl. End of parable. What about this pearl thing? Love this old poem. There once was an oyster, whose story I'll tell, who found that sand had gotten under his shell. Just one little grain, but it gave him such pain, for oysters have feelings, though they look so plain. Now did he berate the workings of fate, which had led him to such a deplorable state? Did he spend endless hours in self-pitying reflection? Did he curse out the government and call for an election? No, as he lay on the shelf, he said to himself, if I can't remove it, then I think I'll improve it. So the years rolled by, as the years always do, and he came to his destiny, oyster stew. And this small grain of sand which had bothered him so was a beautiful pearl all richly aglow. What an oyster can do with such a morsel of sand, wouldn't it be same if we with that grand plan? What couldn't we do if only we'd begin with all the things that get under our skin? A grain in sand, a pearl, is the oyster's response to the wound that it receives. And when you have Christ and His love in the lives of these young ones, do you know right now that knowledge, it took from the first recorded history of the Sumerians to the first century B.C. for knowledge to double? It took from that... To basically the Renaissance for knowledge to double. It took from that to 1900 for knowledge to double. Do you know that knowledge is doubling right now every six and a half years? I mean, that's an unbelievable statistic. U.S. Department of Labor and Statistics says, our children over here in the middle school, in the middle school, not the grade school, half of the jobs that they will have or have not even been invented yet. That is how fast life is changing. And as we in this wonderful, crazy planet in the city of Los Angeles, if you can insert into them to have faith when those irritants and those wounds, and when the kids at school tear their heart out, when they are betrayed by lovers, when everybody walks out on their life and the church steps in, and for you and for me, for our elderly that are so alone and feeling so afraid, that He can take those wounds and create gems out of them. It's remarkable to me. It really is. I just, though I get tired of so much of life never changes and stuff, I never get tired of seeing the power of God in people's lives. Peter Drucker, the great economist, came from Germany into the United States in the 1930s. I was at a lecture that he was at in 1990, and he said, When I first came to this country, it had a very healthy culture and a very sick economy. And now it has the reverse in 1990. It had a very sick culture and a healthy economy. Hey, boys and girls, we're sick in both areas this morning. The economy stinks and the culture stinks. What a great time to be alive. And and I didn't drink anything funny for breakfast. What I mean by that is that God in these moments and these opportunities, if you look back over history, it's when God moves the best when we finally say to God, You try it. And he smiles and says, thank you. I think I will. And in our own lives, when we have this ability to be able to see this kind of love, you know how you help a child find Christ or a student or a young adult or somebody in the middle ages or an elderly person whose heart has been so broken by life and betrayed? Easy. You love them. As you always say of children, first they learn to love my teacher, then I learn to love my teacher's God. First they learn to love you, because you care about them. Then they learn to love your God. Remember Naomi and Ruth we talked about. Naomi, her daughter-in-law, who her sons had died, and she said, I'm going back to Israel to serve my God. And Ruth said, I want your God. If you love me the way you have, I want your God. That's what evangelism is. And even the kids of this world that they have in front of us. When I was uh, back in Detroit, our associate pastor of Caring uh, told me a remarkable story. There was a woman there and she gave uh, birth to a son and he had a disease. I forget what it was, but they said he's not going to live more than a year. And so they... Parents obviously loved him. He lived not only a year, he lived to three and a half. And she taught him as a little boy the Sunday school lesson. She came to church all the time. And she taught him the 23rd Psalm on his hand and say, The Lord is my shepherd. And the thumb was the shepherd and she'd put her hand around it like a shepherd hugging and hold him and hug him and he would giggle she would teach him this all the time. The Lord is my shepherd. She walked in um, one morning. And he had died. Totally unexpected. Hadn't been showing any symptoms or signs. She said that when she found him there in his crib. He was holding his thumb. Who gives that love? Who gives that peace, that assurance? It's us. And we don't need to save anybody. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And we can't live their lives for them. You don't need to. God is very much there for them like He is for you and me. What we do need to do is invest in the next generation, relationally. Take the time. And the next generation, I say, the people we're working with and in the studios and in our classrooms and those that are sitting there on the block next to us, to be able to invest in them financially. I mean, everybody's out of money and everybody's asking for money, but to be able to pray about, say, Lord, I want to help you to get the good news that nobody else will get to them. To this next generation, above all, to invest in them spiritually, to teach them how to love and how to laugh and how to trust. And they asked him, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And he took a little child and placed him in his midst. And I said, truly, I say to you, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Not childish, childlike, just trusting. Smart words. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have loved us and you have given us life. And Lord, we have so many pains and aches and struggles. God, compared to our brothers and sisters throughout world history and around the world, we are so spoiled. But Lord, you understand us and you love us. Father, I thank you for this great privilege of being able to invest in the next generation. Lord, I think you're raising up the greatest generation this world has ever seen. I really do, because I think, Lord, it's going to be the last generation. But, Lord, I pray that as we continue to realize that you love us, that, Lord, we can never out your love, we can never run away from you, that you don't come and hold us in those big, strong arms and whisper to us of the things that you have planned. And so, Lord, as we come before you now with our tithes and our offerings, pray you bless the gift and the giver alike, that Christ might reign more fully. For his sake we pray. Amen.